morning. I'm Chris Farrell, filling in for Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News, and I'm glad you could join us today. So, how would you feel if your coworker was a robot? Now, warehouse workers and auto assembly workers have been using robots for many years now, and research shows that some two-thirds of jobs use some kind of artificial automation. Yet we're only at the beginning in the rise of artificial intelligence, or AI. Entrepreneurs and employees in all industries will find using AI on the job routine in the not-too-distant future. That is, assuming they still have a job. There's a range of estimates, but experts wouldn't be surprised if one-fourth of current jobs will be eliminated by AI. Scary projection, isn't it? Yet, there's more to the conversation about how workers can adapt to the rise of AI. For one thing, we've been here before. Remember the late 1950s comedy, Death Set, with Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy? So the movie captures fears back then that computers would replace humans. Now, there's been a lot of jobs created since the late 1950s, but now the alarm is artificial intelligence will create a job market dystopia. So today continues our exploration of AI. Yesterday in the show, my guests explored how AI is affecting creative work. And you can listen to that conversation by searching for NPR News with Angela Davis wherever you get your podcasts. This hour, we're going to look into the promise and the peril of powerful AI technologies and what it holds for the future of our jobs and entrepreneurship. And I want to hear from you. How is your employer or industry using AI? What conversations are you having at work about AI? If you're thinking about starting a company, how are you considering using AI? The phone lines are open. Calls at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. So now it's time to bring in my guests. Both are in the studio. Uh, Nancy Lyons is the co-founder and CEO of Clockwork, a Minneapolis-based digital agency and an advocate for making workplace cultures more human-centered. And her agency incorporates AI into its workflow. Welcome. Thanks, Chris. Also with me in the studio is Alok Gupta. He's the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty Research and Administration at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota, and he researches AI and its effect on work. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be here, Chris. So to start off with you, Alok, what are we... What are we talking about when we're looking into the impact of artificial intelligence in the workplace? I mean, what does that really mean? Paint a picture for us. Well, what it means is that a lot of jobs uh, will that require uh, routine work uh, can be done much better by AI because it can look at the past data uh, and look at what people did, for example, and which uh, outcomes resulted in Uh, better economic or profitable uh, outcomes, and it chooses it with more consistency than humans can. And so what we are talking about is that a lot of jobs that are sort of routine, commoditized, they are amenable to uh, be done by technology such as AI, which uses past data, of course, done by humans, things done by humans, and uh, replicates it uh, with more consistency. So you can understand the fear just with what you said that many people have hearing what you're saying. They're going, I'm not going to have a job. Well, so again, if you carefully think about what has happened in the past, uh, as your own example kind of showed, uh, 
lot of things that get commoditized uh they get outsourced they get uh they get done by machines they get ro- uh, done by robots but that creates new jobs uh, new kinds of jobs so what it requires is that we get into a mindset of active learning we create that mindset among our employees among among our students so that they can they can be ready to take on the next set of challenges if you look at the world's population from early 20th century to now it has quadrupled uh, yet if you look at the statistics on employment the employment is uh, or unemployment is at record low so uh, obviously the jobs haven't been uh, jobs haven't gone away they have been replaced by new kinds of jobs and the challenge in front of the society and government is to sort of keep on thinking about how do we train next generation of workforce so nancy what does it mean that you're using ai in your workplace i mean what does that i can't what does that look like well it could look like any number of things depending on the industry for us <clears throat> we're using ai <clears throat> of course right now right i'm going to have to clear my throat yeah. um we're using ai uh to create efficiencies in our work to help us um unblock ourselves so we're using it for simple tasks like uh rote emails things that happen um <clears throat> uh every day that perhaps um suck brain power that we could use for more innovative thinking you know when we're thinking about what we want to create for our clients that push the margin so we're using ai as an assistant as an efficiency tool as um a, a an aid to do better work and that's what we're encouraging our clients to do too um but ai shows up in a in a number of ways automating simple tasks is really what we're seeing um, the most. And so you were a, a pioneer with, as an entrepreneur with the rise of the internet. Uh, what are you seeing that's similar or different this period of time with all the questions that are surrounding the rise of AI, you know, looking back at your experience as an entrepreneur with the rise of the internet. Sure. I mean, I appreciate the word pioneer. I think uh, my career started when the internet became mainstream. And I think I'm seeing a lot of... It was the commercialization of, of the absolutely, internet. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in the early 90s, and I was seven. And I think... Um, <laughs> You know, what I see a lot is that same fear, that same, um, you know, anxiety about what this technology will introduce that will take away from human opportunity. And, you know, that, that question about, am I going to lose my job to a robot is a, is one that I hear every single day. And the way that I answer that is, you know, I, I think, um, we don't have to fear AI taking our jobs, but we do have to fear humans that are comfortable with artificial intelligence, human that are cur- humans that are curious about it, taking our jobs. And I-, I saw that, you know, 30 years ago, when the internet started to make its way into the workplace, there was a lot of fear, there was a lot of trepidation, there was a lot of anxiety. And I think that um, at that time, what we saw was people who started to take advantage, who were curious about the technology, who understood that they could be self-taught, which is very similar now, you can self-teach, you can decide to explore and be curious 
this about artificial intelligence and experiment with ways in which to integrate it into your work. And I think that's what we had to encourage then. Let's just start to experiment, to implement these technologies to see how they add to work versus detract. I think that's how we're trying to encourage clients now. Let's start to experiment. That that uh, being curious is essential right now. And being unafraid and being willing to dive in and experiment with these technologies and see how they can work for you is what we're in, trying to encourage all of our clients to do. And Professor, one, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, uh, maybe I just add a little bit to yeah. Nancy's yeah, thought. I think she's absolutely correct in uh, saying that we have to be, if you want to be afraid, you want to be afraid of people who are more capable of working with AI Uh, than you are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason is that AI is not going to take away jobs. It's going to take away some tasks from humans. A job requires doing lots of different tasks. So people who can use AI for certain tasks more efficiently will perhaps replace people who can't. So that's what really it's going to be about, at least in the short run. And, And I say short run, that means you know, five years, 10 years, mm-hmm. something like that. Well, I want to get back to this uh, short run of the time, but um, just want to let you, people know the phone lines are open at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. And we'd like to hear your thoughts or your experience uh, with AI. Are you having conversations at work about AI? Or if you're thinking about starting a company, are you considering using AI, you know, building that right into your business plan, your business model? And is your employer or your industry using AI? Have you experimented? Have you gone on to chat GPT and played around a little bit? What do you think? Um, timing. So there was this... Uh, with the rise of electricity, this famous moment, 1900, Henry Adams, he goes to the exposition in Paris and he sees the electricity, the hall of dynamos. And he says, this is the hinge of history. But at that time, and my numbers are going to be slightly off, but only 5% of factories had electricity and only 3% of homes. And it took like 20, 30 years before you got even to half. Mm. So when we think about it, we're seeing this AI and it is everywhere. And we think this is happening right now. How long does it take for this to spread through organizations, societies, the home? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. So we know uh, from our internet experience that everything kind of gets got supercharged. Things that used to take decades happened in a year or less. And I expect that it will be the same, that we'll very quickly get to a plateau, which would be the which will set the base level very, very quickly because there are uh, there are going to be off the shelf technologies which will give access to everyone uh, sort of to the base level uh, of expertise, for example, chat GPT. But uh, to take advantage uh, of AI in a business environment requires adaptation of this technology to your business, customize it for your business. And that takes time because you don't you can't just do it in a naive manner by applying machine learning techniques to your data. But you need human expertise to train the models. You need to evaluate these models. You need to uh, think about ways in which AI models can keep on continuously learning. And uh, just uh, food for thought, if you remove the humans from the loop, uh, where is that learning going to come from? 
right? So right. we don't have biological AI systems as yet. They could be there in the future. But at this point in time, humans are essential in that loop because humans are the ones that connect the unconnected dots naturally. That's where our innovative abilities come from. And that's where uh, AI is going to learn anything for the future. So at this point in time, and, and I I can say the short term in this case is 10 years. At least for 10 years, I do see humans being a necessary part of the equation. Beyond that, it's hard for anyone to predict. <laughs> and Nancy, are you finding that the, the tools, because AI is a tool, right? Mm-hmm. Are you finding the tools getting better? Are you seeing improvement uh, in the tools that, that you're using? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when ChatGPT launched its consumer product, um, it was, what, the beginning of this year? And that caused a, a rather explosive set of conversations and interest in AI. Prior to that, the conversations we were having were really about how do we monetize this? You know, it's there. It's lovely. People are using it sort of under the surface. We've been doing AI work forever with recommendation engines and configuration tools. It's been around, but having it be readily available to the consumer is the thing that's changed the conversation and made us get a little more anxious about what's coming. But I think reminding people that they are tools and they are accessible and to add on to what we've been talking about, humans are essential. They are the opportunity and they are the problem, right? So I think we have to include <laughs> we humans. Are the problem. Absolutely. <laughs> we have to include humans in the design of how we integrate these tools into our workplaces. But we also have to encourage humans to embrace a change mindset. And I think the thing that takes so long is not the technology. The technology is there. We can implement those tools tomorrow. But what takes long in implementing technology is humans being willing to accept it, work with it, feel comfortable with it, being able to hire people with curious mindsets. I think it's that piece of it, the human infrastructure that we wrap around the technology that's going to take a while. But absolutely, it's tools. They're little products that we can implement inside of organizations to increase efficiency, to improve sales, to improve marketing, to increase uh, search engine optimization. Those are the reasons that AI is so intriguing right now. But the humans are the ones who are dragging their feet because because we tend to sensationalize these conversations about technology and we we do a lot to create fearful energy around technology and my whole reason for living right now is to encourage people not to be afraid but to embrace the technology because the thing that makes AI different especially these consumer tools from what we've seen in the past is Anyone can use it. You don't have to be an engineer. You just have to, right now with ChatGPT, be able to ask good questions. That's it. And I have some follow-up questions, but I want to bring in uh, some callers in this conversation. So let's go to Brian in Minneapolis. And Brian, what is your observation? Um, I was a graphic designer uh, back in the early 80s when it was still hand paste up and layout. Oh, yeah. yeah. The exacto knife in. and everything. <laughs> exactly. Waxing machines, the whole thing. Um, when computers came in, everybody was up in arms and that graphic designers were not going to be able to do have work anymore. The computers were going to do it all. And it was that whole chicken in the air, era, the, the, you know, the sky is falling kind of thing. You know, I've seen that come a couple of three times now with technology. 
with this one with AI, I think we need to kind of be a little more cautious with a little more training wheels because there is a little more of an uh, kind of a, a learning process that AI brings to the table that we were only having to deal with basically human interactions and human choices before. I, that would be my only concern on this. And I think AI is pretty amazing stuff. We just need to make sure that it's implemented in a proper way for everybody who gets to use it. That's right. I'm going to ask uh, both of you to respond to Brian, because it's a really important point, These the sense about guard, uh, what would be like guardrails, mm-hmm. Professor? Yes, I think Brian makes a great point. Uh, because AI learns from the past data, whatever problems are there, for example, biases, implicit or explicit or exclusion, all that becomes part of the data. And one of the common techniques that AI uses is called reinforcement learning. That is, it rewards the profitable behavior more and tries to gravitate towards that. So even if you take the data that that doesn't have explicit biases, but implicit bias. For example, Amazon's tool to hire uh, people which, you know, had uh, majority male uh, applicants for technical jobs. It started favoring uh, male applicants, even though it was not uh, designed to do that, but just data had that characteristics. Similarly, Larry Summers famously, uh, you know, economic advisor to Clinton as well as uh, Howard's uh, president at one point in time. When he was a Harvard president, he said that uh, women, uh, impl- women's implicit uh, aptitude uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, creates this challenge of having them in engineering and technical jobs. But the data he was looking at was data from past 50 years where women weren't in technical jobs, right? So you don't have the right data to build the right kind of models. So that is something that you have to be explicitly careful about. And that's the reason why I am a big believer in keeping humans in the loop because humans, most humans, I would say, have these filters uh, that when we see something becomes explicit in terms of biases, we stop ourselves. Uh, we all have implicit biases, and uh, we we uh, we don't recognize them often. But when that becomes an explicit bias, when you see that you are only hiring male uh, uh, male uh, programmers, you will probably stop yourself as Amazon did, right? Because humans were looking at these results. However, if you just leave it to AI to do this, we'll we'll have big problems in terms of biases, in terms of having algorithms uh, that won't know that they're doing something wrong. And as it gets to the you know the heart of the ethics mm-hmm. of artificial intelligence, I mean, this is an area that that you're deeply concerned about. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we're seeing right now humans trying to get ahead of AI with the Writers Guild strike, with the Actors strike. What they're saying is we got to get ahead of this and, and determine the rules. And it's us; we have to be involved in that. And I, I encourage all organizations to consider how to involve the people in 
determining those guardrails. We are in charge. We're making the AI and we're putting it in place to help us in our jobs. And I think rather than act like this is, you know, <clears throat> what was the movie? Um, do you remember the movie in the 80s where the machine suddenly took over? Um, well, they were all, that was all the movies in the 80s, probably. <laughs> I think um, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, that's not going to happen, but we have to determine the rules. And that's what the actors are asking for, right? They're saying, we want, if you're going to take our image and replicate that and create whole content around it, then we want to be part of how you determine you're going to do that. And we want to be rewarded for our image. And I think every organization has to get ahead of it and use design thinking to determine how we're going to use this, how humans are going to play a role in it, how we're going to examine where our biases come into play. And I think that's why humans are so essential in this process. It cannot operate without us because it is using historical data. So I want to just paint a scenario because both, you know, both of you have deep knowledge of organizations. And so I was reading uh, one scenario about AI and it was talking about doctors. And it said, this is going to allow doctors to go back to being doctors. AI is going to take over a lot of the routine tasks. And you're going to be able to look your patient in the eye while they're in there for that half hour, whatever it is. And you're going to actually go back to being what you wanted to be. I was reading another thing in the trade press. And it was saying, we can Doctors can see a lot more people now. Hey, we can really, we can really increase the productivity of the doctors because we got this AI and we can really push a lot more people through it. Those are two very different organizational decisions. And one, we can all kind of nod and say, this is the way we'd like the world to be, which is where primary care doctors care about us. And the other one, we can kind of go, this is, this is, you know, this is becoming, you know, 40 hours pay for, for uh, 60 hours worth of work, right? So what leads us to embrace the more human approach as opposed to taking the sort of Fordism factory model to some sort of extreme, Professor? That's where organizational values come in. I would argue that both of these models will be there in the future, and they both have utility. You know, if you think about the regular checkups, uh, things that are routine, uh, you know, if you look at uh, uh, countries like India and China where the the population is so large and, and the qualified doctors are uh, far fewer in numbers, there there is a value of having this factory model, right? More people will have access to healthcare. Yeah. On the other hand, if doctors can actually focus much more on conversations with uh, with patients and discussing uh, difficult diagnosis like lupus or uh, or, or uh, you know you take a, num- a large number of of uh, uh, of uh, ailments chronic ailments that have variety of symptoms hard to diagnose uh, ms all kinds of uh, on all kinds of different uh, uh, different uh, diseases, uh, doctors can indeed spend more time rather than that half an hour where half of the time they are inputting data into their systems, right? All that can be taken uh, up by AI, right? And they can spend more time uh, with with the patients. So I think both models will coexist uh, and will have different applications. The danger is if you have an organization that is just profit-minded and just implements that factory model, let's say, uh, that will be disastrous for 
uh, for critical ailments and difficult to diagnose diseases. Uh, so, so I do see place for both types of approaches, and I think they will coexist, but hopefully uh, in different circumstances. And Nancy, I mean, are you in a, an uphill battle in a fight for a more what, humanistic CEO, a more humanistic senior management? Yes, I think so. I think, um, you know, after the pandemic, I think the the entire country is experiencing an existential crisis and trying to determine how work works. And the big conversation about the future of work encompasses a lot. And AI is just a piece of it. Right. Um, I think that we have to reset a bit. And I agree with you. I think it's all about the values of the organization. And there is a place for both models. But I'm always encouraging people to recognize that right now, innovation is a lot of things. And just yesterday, I had a whole conversation about how it's innovative when people actually answer the phone. Because what's happened... <laughs> it's is, true. Right? It is It true. is. Yes. When, when we get to talk to another human, that's the most relief and comfort we feel in an entire day. And isn't it efficient? It is. Absolutely. <laughs> Otherwise, you're spending a half an hour with AI while it moves you through this process. And I do agree. I think there's a place for AI. There's a place for the more model. But I think the humans need to be involved in the design to determine where those human touch points must exist to create efficiencies, but also to create those connections that we're missing so much. My guests today include Nancy Lyons, co-founder of Clockwork, a Minneapolis-based design agency, and Professor Gupta, the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty Research and Administration at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. And I want to hear from you. How is your employer or industry using AI? Call us, 651-227-6000. And let's just go right to the phone lines. And Tim in Roseville. And Tim, what is your... Uh, question or observation? Um, I just appreciate the conversation. I appreciate you taking my call. Um, I think the example of the doctor's office applies to a lot of other professions as well. Um, I'm a financial advisor up here in Roseville, and I I just think it'll allow me to do more for my clients, and um, it's it's just going to be another tool. It's not going to replace the human element in a lot of industries. So how do you think you'll use it? Um, similar to the doctor's uh, office example, the simple things um, it will be able to do for me, which will free me up um, to do other things, and it'll allow me to work with more people more efficiently, um, which will bring costs down uh, in every industry. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, for calling in. And now I want to ask both of you a question that was generated by chat GPT. <laughs> and it says, there's a fear that AI could perpetuate income inequality. How can we ensure that AI benefits all workers and not just the select few? Professor? Yeah, so, you know, my entire line of work, uh, I, I do what I call economic engineering, where I think about how the gains or productivity gains that come from deployment of technology can be divided fairly uh, between people who are affected by it and people who benefit from it uh, because large amount of benefits go to uh, designers of the systems, right? Uh, 
And part of that requires that we understand, and it's going to be different in different industries, but part of it requires why would people use technology? Because, you know, humans by nature, we... Uh, we tend to think we are smarter than uh, what we are working with, and we try to outsmart uh, technology. Uh, and if we keep on doing that, we don't take the advantage of technology that is out there. So this is this goes to Nancy's point where she was saying that you know we we don't need to uh, worry about technology, but but embrace it. Uh, and so embracing technology requires that there will be explicit benefits. Uh, that are uh, that are promised to people who are using it, either due to productivity gain or having flex work or or like uh, uh, Writers Guild and and uh, uh, Hollywood sort of strike sort of uh, highlights that uh, that they need to have a share uh, of the gains that come from using this technology. So that explicit promise has to be prom- has to be delivered either through legislation or uh, which which never is a good solution by the way <laughs> uh, <laughs> or by uh, by humanistic CEOs and CXOs of the companies that are deploying these technologies in the companies and explicitly sort of think about how their employees are going to benefit in the long run. And there are examples of companies who are very thoughtfully thinking about how their uh, employees can be on this path of lifelong learning so they are not stuck in a job doing the same thing, but uh, the job is exciting for them uh, and they are uh, they are growing in their work and not in place but uh, beyond their their uh, local environment so so as long as companies start thinking like that they will find that employees will create value for them there's will be there will be more stickiness to the jobs and you know this uh, sort of short uh, time period we see the turnover we see in industries these days that uh, that perhaps can be uh, can be at least slowed down a little bit so that people gain experience in a job develop intuition in their environments so that they can be more creative in the long run in in the job they are doing so Nancy I'm an employee of clockwork and I come to you and I say you know I'm I'm getting a little nervous that this AI is you know it's kind of it might eliminate my job it's or it's going to just not make my job as interesting as it used to be I mean what you know and what would you you know say to me and what would you say to the the employee who's concerned about AI unfolding in your company Well I've had those conversations. You know, I recently had a conversation with an engineer who came to me and said, I, you know, the writing's on the wall. I don't know that there'll be room for computer programmers, you know, of my skill level that much longer. And I was actually surprised because in, in, you know, my thinking is, and the conversation that we ended up having was, um, you know, how do we use AI to level up our skill set? How do we use it as an education tool? Um, how do we use it to make your job easier? But I also think that 
the only way technology is approachable is if the humans are involved. And the thing that I think, uh, you know, makes companies like ours really valuable in this moment in time is what I like to call digital leadership. Um, we need leaders to think through how to implement and consider the creation of these guardrails, rails of these rules. We need humans to think about how do we align our values with the capabilities and the expectations around this technology. And so that particular engineer and I ended up talking about his involvement in creating the tools, refining the tools to complement what he does versus take over what he does. The other thing is, I'm not sure we're in a place where we can trust machines to absolutely take over for humans because humans analyze in a way that machines still cannot. Um, and, and I think that's what makes us remarkable and valuable. And, and then finally, there's the emotional piece. And if we're doing it right, you know, there's an emotional um, application. There's an emotional space for humans that machines can never touch. Um, and I think all business has emotion. All business is about relationships. We can create more of them with the help of AI. We can create more touch points. We can create more opportunity, but we're not going to replace human connections, which at the end of the day, build trust. And at the end of the day, uh, that trust is why people make business decisions, is why they choose, like the financial advisor. Uh, I can get all the research and data I want from machines, but I need to be able to look a human in the eye and say, are you sure you know what you're doing? Because this is my future life on the line. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And uh, go ahead. Can I, uh, so maybe I'll, I'll plug a few things from my research, which is sort yeah. of uh, quite uh, interesting and related to what Nancy was talking about. So there is, uh, you know, uh, my research and other research, we have found that um, – people lose some of their creativity if they are just working with off-the-shelf AI. Uh, and they lose that creativity because they are sort of asked to push whatever AI is saying or suggesting. Uh, and over time, what happens is if AI is slightly better on average uh, than a human, uh, then they they lose their what we call complementary thinking, uh, which allows us to be better than AI, at least in groups. So what we have found is that groups are always better than AI solutions, uh, and groups can perform outperform uh, AI often, but we lose that creativity. So, for example, groups that work with AI perform less well or they are less efficient than people who work without AI, right? And that comes from the creativity of humans. But they lose that creativity if they're working with machines. Uh, and therefore, it's very important to, to really carefully design these environments and not replace human work. Uh, rather, carefully think about what parts of the work can machine do. The boring parts. <laughs> the is boring what we're saying. Parts. Yes. 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 So uh, we have uh, David in St. Paul. He, he wrote in, I think um, this one's for you, Professor. Is there a way to fingerprint use of AI or so college professors or other people evaluating papers or data can determine if AI was used to create the content uh, or even worse, a political campaign creating an ad that was fake? Yeah. So I would imagine with your colleagues, this is a 
big topic of discussion. It is a big topic of discussion. And uh, unlike uh, current plagiarism de- detection tools like Turnitin, uh, w- which basically look at uh, the text and compare it to the existing text on the Internet, uh, technologies, the large language models such as ChatGPT, uh, they work in a very different way. They take these literals, the the uh, let's call them sentences, process them, and then come up with their own syntactic uh, uh, sort of uh, environment, things that make sense to a human, right? Uh, or writing that makes sense. And in fact, if you ask the same question uh, to chat GPT different times, uh, even with exactly same wording, it might give you a completely different answer, Right. So it's uh, uh, so open a- open API, which created ChatGPT. They themselves have a tool that can give you a probability uh, of text that, that was generated by open a- uh, by by ChatGPT. However, uh, there uh, there has been no court case about it, uh, so it's too early. Uh, so it's hard to determine whether if we use that tool, because, you know, the the answer you get is going to be slightly different every time. Uh, it's not going to be same as an existing text somewhere else. Uh, can you call it plagiarism? Right. Uh, that's an open question and we struggle with it. So our approach has been to uh, largely agreed has been to use uh, technologies such as chat GPT or uh, other uh, other generative AI technologies like art or whatever, right, uh, to uh, create a different uh, uh, starting point, right? So you can ask students that, oh, you can ask ChatGPT, just tell us what you asked, what your answers were, and how did you modify it, right? Okay. Or you can even go to a level where you say, okay, just use ChatGPT to solve this problem, Right, you have to think about the problems that we ask differently. Uh, we have to think about how we evaluate it differently. But uh, but I think it's inevitable that ultimately some of it will end up in court, depending upon uh, who is doing it and where. For example, if somebody writes a script using ChatGPT, right? Right. Uh, so uh, uh, we'll know uh, how, uh, at least from a legal perspective, uh, where we stand there. But right now. We just don't. So we we are instead embracing the technology and saying, okay, let students use it perhaps. So I have a chat, G, chat GPT question, generated question for you, Nancy. But first, with, uh, uh, is there are clients approaching you and say, hey, we want to know what was generated by AI. We want to know. Uh, we want a little bit of transparency here because you know you're we're you're, you're charging us money and mm-hmm. um, so what part of your of the work is being done by AI and what part by humans? I mean, is that a question that's out there? <clears throat> so far, we haven't had any clients approach us uh, to say that. Okay, um, but we've also been fairly transparent about our position around AI and we are using it as a complementary tool. So we may ask questions to help us get through, you know, just a, a, a tough issue when we're trying to solve a problem. A- AI is another um, another answer that we look for as we're pulling together um, a, a, a solution. But I do think um, 
you know, we don't create content, but we advise clients around how to create content. And we work sure. with third parties um, in creating content. Content is the biggest um issue when it comes to uh, search engine performance. Um, and I think clients are feeling overwhelmed by the amount of content that they have to create regularly. And Google has said that it will prioritize what it's calling quality content over um, AI-generated content. And so there are checks in place to determine what was created by a robot, what might actually be heavy content created by humans. It's quite an image, though, the robots monitoring the robots. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly, yes. And so we do know that content created by humans supposedly will rank higher, will perform better, and all of our clients are looking for performance ranking, right? They want to show up and search. They want to show up first. And so I think those are the conversations that we're having more often. And what we're trying to encourage people to do is use the technology to help you generate ideas and opportunities for content creation. But humans still have to play a role in that in order for you to generate the quality content that Google suggests it wants. Let's go uh, back to the phones and let's go to Emily in Minneapolis. And Emily, what's your observation? Hi there. Um, so the other day I was teaching, I'm, I'm an artist. I was te- I, I, I had a student bring in a an AI picture that she said, oh, I want to paint this. And we went through and we talked about the process that you would go through to like replicate. But this was an AI, AI piece. So I started to think about the process that the AI goes through to get that end product and the process that a human goes through to get that end product. And it made me curious about how um, maybe like unfinished or or sort of like that imperfection in art and the human way might become more valued. For example, like in my paintings and my portraits, I use grid lines uh, to, to draw my, my people to sketch them out. And when I paint over them, I actually leave the, the grid visible so that the, so that the um, person seeing it can see my process and sort of see and like be part of that journey. And I'm just I'm just wondering like how is that going to change sort of like the value of like what we actually like go oh that's really cool because right now it's like photorealism uh, people just go awe at it but. Yeah, that can be so easily. This is this is a great point, and both both guests are nodding while 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 you're talking. And you know, part of it is so much of art and the artist and creativity is the process, right? You 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 come up with an idea, you sort of try and work it out. All that that process, the intensity of of that process. So, um, thoughts about what Emily is saying. So. You know, if you think about music, let's say, you know, resampling is also an art now, right? So in some senses, you can think of uh, uh, using uh, the generative uh, AI technology as an artist, uh, and you can uh, ask it to different things, right? I mean, so you can ask it to draw, uh, you know, uh, the grid lines, for example, uh, you can ask it to change the shade of the colors, make it look more uh, like pastels or rough or whatever, right? I mean, you can give it name of the artists or photographs and say, I want that kind of texture. And, and it 
eventually you'll be able to do all this. Um, I think uh, uh, what uh, what human process, at least in terms of art, is uh, there's a story behind uh, a painting, a song, uh, a piece of music uh, that is more valuable. AI doesn't have that story, right? Uh, the story is embedded in a human's thought process as to how they came about this. So I think the narrative behind uh, a piece of art will become as important as the piece of art itself in the long term. And that's your reaction to what uh, Emily was saying. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we certainly see mass-produced art now, but the most valuable art is the art that we know is absolutely created by the creator. Um, and I think that um, it goes back to that emotion aspect that I was mentioning earlier. Um, we connect with art because of story, because of emotion, because of experience and process. And all of that is missing because what AI does is essentially take from the past to very quickly replicate and mass produce in the now. And humans don't respond to mass production in the way they respond to human creation. And so I mentioned there uh, a chat GPT uh, generated question for you, Nancy, and also Professor. Um, how can AI be harnessed to create a more inclusive workforce, providing opportunities for traditionally underrepresented groups? Well, so I'm going to defer to the professor to talk about the data and the models. I mean, historically speaking, the data is biased, right? Like the data represents the white male culture that has dominated forever. And so I think it's about creating new models. It's about exploring new data sets. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to defer to you to speak to exactly how that works. But I think we have to be very thoughtful and intentional about creating the, the base from which AI gets and be its demanding thinking. of the tech industry. Absolutely. You just can't just say, "Well, I'm going to throw it out there," and it's the free market working and all that. I mean, you have to sort of say, "This is an ethical, this is a deeply ethical issue," and we have to include those marginalized communities in the rulemaking we've been talking about the entire time. It's why it's not about CEOs determining the values through which they deploy these technologies. It's about humans at all level of uh, levels of organizations showing up for these conversations and being included in the process. And it's about, you know, I, I mean, there's so many aspects. Um, there's so many, there's so many um, points of interest and activity in this particular question because, you know, right now we're seeing DEI uh, be eliminated inside of organizations because in the last few years, you know, people invested in it. And then when we all weren't looking, they eliminate it or they make it an island of a single person. And the reality is, uh, equity needs to be infused in everything an organization does. It needs to be a core value and commitment. And because without it, we can't address these issues. And Professor, you mentioned earlier about, you know, it's embedded in the, in the data that the AI is looking. So what what can be done? Yeah, very interesting question. And I have some thoughts. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, again, it goes to the intent of these creator of these technologies, right? Uh, so, for example, uh, uh, there is this concept of metacognition, uh, which says, okay, do you know what you don't know? 
right? And it's especially important for humans. Those humans have a higher level of metacognitions, usually perform better because they ask better questions. Um, however, it's also true for technology. Technology presumably can have metacognition where it can tell you what it hasn't considered in its decision-making, where it's lacking in its decision-making, where data is deficient uh, in terms of the uh, parameter space from DEI perspective, from equity perspective, from all kinds of areas. So, so it's up to us to demand that this information be provided when uh, a result is generated. What is missing from the underlying data that has generated this result? Well, so we only have a few seconds left, but the one, like, one sentence. You, what thought do you want to leave people with you know, as, they, as they walk away from this conversation to be thinking about AI? Well, uh, from for me, I think uh, companies, organizations need to really deeply think about where to deploy AI. It, it, just because you can uh, deploy it, it doesn't mean you should. Uh, and and uh, w what orientation uh, you take in terms of all these things we're talking about? Uh, we don't need to act like this is happening to us. We don't need to be victims of technology. We can harness technology and use it for good. It's all about intention. Well, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation and uh, two great guests. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.